We go, Graham Brown for Asia Tech Podcast here at Singularity University Conference in Singapore, organized by SIM. Sitting with Jody Medic all the way from California. Jody, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's glad to have you here. You've done a great job, some great feedback from you chairing day one mm-hmm. of the conference. So I want to get some thoughts on what the key messages were on the conference. You know, what was coming out, what was on the top of people's minds when they were talking to you in the lunch break and the coffee break sure. and so on. Um, what are the key messages that you got out there that you wanted to sort of leave people with? And also you're doing a panel session this afternoon, correct? So uh, Yeah, I'll be talking about augmented and virtual realities this afternoon. So Excellent. Mm-hmm. So you've got quite a, a free range, a wide range, evoked set of technologies that mm-hmm. you cover. Mm. I like how you describe yourself as a futurist. It's always a difficult game mm. to get right. So I want to know a little bit about what a futurist is what your sort of background to that and also I love in your introduction on your LinkedIn profile it says I make technology speak human I do there's no messing around in no. that is that no okay. maybe we can start with that what's the pain point so to speak and what, what are people getting wrong and why do we need to make technology speak human? Well, if you look at the way that we use today's technologies, and and, and I've developed quite a quite a few uh, over the years, so it's, it's been a really lucky career for me, asking lots of questions gets you into lots of doors, you know? Yeah. Um, but as we do this, a lot of the times what we're doing is we're so focused on teaching humans how to speak computer, right? That we have, a, we have entire programs dedicated to learning computer languages. And then um, if you look at the UI and the user experience that we developed, it's really about training human beings how to push the right buttons in the right order to make the machine do what it's supposed to do, right? Mm. That means that the onus is on the human to really understand what the device does and how to operate it and how to translate what's happening in the real world into computer speak. That means that we're slowing our brains down pretty significantly. Uh, In fact, if we look at the science behind what's happening to our brains, we're actually killing our brain's ability to think and do that really deep creative thinking that our brains have been designed to do. And instead, our our thoughts are taking on a very staccato sort of pattern because we're constantly being interrupted by our devices and constantly having to kind of translate our our thoughts into bits and bobs that the, mm. that the tech can use to do something with. And And unfortunately, it's showing that it's really killing our ability to think in a meaningful way. And so... We are finally at the point where we have cognitive computings in in the form of augmented, uh, sorry, artificial intelligence and and, um, really deep learning um, tools. And we have perceptual computing, things like machine vision, um, natural language processing, as well as a myriad of sensors that are picking up all sorts of data about the world around us and providing that really essential context that we are currently tasked with translating to the computer. Hmm. So now the computer can start to understand the world we live in. It can understand ourselves better than our than we can, right? With the with biosensors and all of these kinds of wearable technologies that we're using for fitness and things like this. So the technology is finally starting to understand us in a way that we don't even understand us. So there's really no reason for us to then force humans to kind of translate all that back to the computer because the computer can understand it. And so that means that we can take the the responsibility of sort of, you know, translation off of the human and put it onto the computer so that the computer can start to speak to us in our languages instead of having to make us speak to it in its language, right? And so mm. that's when we really unlock magical abilities and, and we actually improve 
our brain's functionality, especially if we use cognitive uh, ergonomics. So help me understand, is that maybe in the earlier days of uh, computer science in AI, I mean, AI has been around for many, many 50s, years. Yeah. yeah. So in, in those early days when we were building very rudimentary machines, mm. we had to almost approach it as an engineer yeah. and, and approach it from that context where we started. But yet now the machines have caught up and overtaken. It now takes us somebody to step back and say, actually, we don't need necessarily that sort of input protocol we can sort of change the way that we're doing this and be more creative with these machines what does that mean though i mean what does like maybe we can put some examples of what that actually manifests as in our day-to-day lives you talked for example about how machines better understand us Mm. and you know maybe we can bring this around to some of the things we talked about the themes in this conference as well um wearables you mentioned as an example Mm. you live right on the doorstep of silicon valley yes you know Everybody has a wearable there. Mm. You know, everybody is tracking everything that they're mm. doing there from what they're eating mm. to what's coming out of mm. their body, right? Mm. So what, what is that doing to us, you know, in terms of how we're using this data and how we're behaving and interacting with this as well? Yeah, you know, I think so right now, if you look at the the way that we use all these things, right? So you're absolutely spot on that we've been struggling for so long to build a supercomputer that's capable of doing all the things that we were hoping it to do. And then ultimately, really, when we when we developed AI, what we were thinking of is that it's an update to our neocortex. And in fact, if you look at um, DeepMind, the, the really the breakthrough technology that, that came out of London there, um, when he developed that, he, he was thinking about creating a pattern recognizer that matches what our neocortex does, where it recognizes patterns and can take action and make decisions, yeah? And so the, the AI is developed to be a pattern recognizer. And in fact, it, it the whole premise of it is that it will upgrade our neocortex from being able to recognize 300,000 patterns to several trillion. And if you recognize a pattern, then I will be able to recognize that pattern too because I'm connected to the same AI that you are. Mm. And so... That means that if we, you know, that means that we have this upgrade in place that could really improve our abilities to exist in the world, make us almost superhuman, yeah? However, the way that we go about tracking and inputting all this data today is that we're we're constantly stopping and starting. So, I don't know, I... I know that um, it may seem that all of us are wearing fitness trackers, but in fact, what's happened in the U- in Silicon Valley, even and in, in all over the world, is that people buy these fitness trackers. They wear them for a few months, maybe to get their fitness goal. Maybe they were trying to lose some weight. Maybe their doctor wanted to know how much exercise they're doing, and then they put them in a drawer because they it doesn't mean anything. It's just this data that's mm. coming back to them. And if you're if you're trying to gamify your number of steps in a day, it helps you. But once you reach your goal, you kind of stop caring about it, right? And so we can't really leverage it to do anything else. But, you know, in the world, in when we talk about machines, we often talk about the ergonomics of machines. And, and when we look at the ergonomics of machines, what, what they do, what ergonomics does is it adapts a system and it and changes its like physical affordances so that it fits better with our bot, our physical body, right? And it amp, just amplifies our output that much better, right? Mm. Like it makes it that much more efficient than it than it normally would be. Yeah. And so, um, but but computer interface it, it does the opposite. It like slows it down. So like you know, right now I have to 
if I want to really improve my health, um, it's all in these disparate places in the world. There, there's like a fitness tracker data mm. and I have, um, maybe I have, um, I'm, I'm using some sort of food app, like a Weight Watchers or something like that yeah. that tracks what you're eating throughout the day. And then I have another app that's um, communicating with my doctor, like an eat through an email type of thing. And there's all this data that my doctor is collecting about me, but I have no way to leverage that to really change things. Now, let's say I'm a diabetic. Hmm. And if you're a type 2 diabetic, really what is ideal is to create um, uh, lifestyle changes because that's that's what will keep you, it will actually cure you from your type 2 diabetes if you could make those lifestyle changes. But a lot of times we don't actually understand what we're doing wrong. Even if we're told, oh, you should eat more vegetables and not so much sugar, you may not understand that when you're picking up that soda, how much sugar it actually has. But if we can connect all of these things together, like a lot of people are doing with um, centralized health applications, I can connect both my doctor and myself and all of my devices into some sort of system that can help me to understand my glucose levels throughout the day. And to identify when I sit down in a restaurant, let's say I have an AR pair of glasses on, it could say, you know what, that thing that you're about to pick up has this much sugar and this thing right next to it has this little sugar and would be mm. so much better for you. And so we can start to see, and then maybe, you know, like when I'm driving to my appointment, I, right now my default is to find the closest parking spot, but knowing that I'm trying to improve my health to, to fix my diabetes, it could say, actually, there's a parking spot right here that'll help you get in 10,000 more steps, or, you know, a thousand more steps, hopefully not 10,000 more steps, but a thousand more steps into your day, which would improve your fitness level again. That would be a great app. Right. It? And you could yeah. scale it up. Maybe I do want to do 10,000 right. steps. A bit right. of a challenge. Right. right. Yeah. And like I'm trying to get even super fit. Then yeah. I would might uh, amp it up. Now, you know, that's just in that fitness area. But mm. when we think about things like, um, you know, doing work or, or any of those things, the, the fact of the matter is, is that our devices are constantly interrupting us and constantly trying to staccato our thinking in a way that's really inefficient. And so we could find these efficiencies all over the place. Yeah. And allow us to really do that deep creative thought that we're so good at. Well, this is what I wonder because you know, I think your your sort of exploration of the fitness devices and how we're sort of gathering all this data is it has a lot of parallels between the world of work, mm. you know, and that. So, for example, um, it seems that I don't know if it's a transition phase that we're in at the moment, and maybe you can help us understand where we are and put you know what's sure. the roadmap for this. Is that we now have the devices and we're creating huge pools of data, mm. you know, even on an individual mm. basis, like you said, for example, with the, you know, the step tracker, yeah. I'm getting all this data. It's interesting. It's novel. And then I get bored of it. Yeah, I don't what, know what it means. Yeah. What do I do with this? Yeah, right? right. So we, we have this situation it, it could be somebody from the sales team in a bank, for mm. example, mm. or the, the online marketing mm. team generating huge sets of data mm. about their customers. Yet now, all that's doing is creating more work because mm -hmm. then they're going to get they're going to declare data bankruptcy mm -hmm. and say right, okay, let's forget the data. Let's just no. go and talk to the customers. I just want to talk to them. Yeah, right. So I'm wondering where we are. Is it a transitional phase that we're in at the moment? We're sort of working out because maybe the supply and demand, the the supply of the data is is much higher than what we can actually do with it, and we're trying to work out how to do all this. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. So the thing, point of the matter is that right now we're generating all this data. And so, you know, if we look at, a lot of people say we're in industry 4.0, right? And, and, and this is the term that they use, industrial revolution 4.0, whatever. 
And basically what's happened is that in the previous uh, incarnations of the industry revolution, we have been amplifying our manpower, meaning our physical output, right? That's what machines were designed to do, especially when we talk about work, right? Mm. You know, things like, um, you know, uh, industrial machinery and, and even typewriters and computers, the whole point of them was to amplify our output beyond just what we can accomplish in a given day. But now we're at a point where that's not really a, too much of a problem anymore because we have, you know, really effective industrial machines that can do all kinds of output. Hmm. And it's not really about manpower anymore. And now it's about brain power and making sense of all this data. Like, how can I possibly understand it all? And that's that's where I was getting at with the, the upgrade to our neocortex. That's what AI is designed to do is to help us to make sense of data. Hmm. But the way that we are partnering with that AI is still as if we're trying to amplify manpower and not a brain power. And so in order to use it, we have to kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like it's in an isolation tank that we're keeping kind of separated from us because we're kind of afraid of it, you know? Um, and, and that makes sense when you think about the way that computers have been built to now. They were pretty dumb devices. For as smart as they are, they're pretty dumb, right? They don't, they don't understand context. Like my phone buzzes regardless of whether I'm in a, you know, a, a conference on stage and I need it not to buzz mm. or whether I'm sitting on my couch at home. It doesn't seem to understand the difference between inside voice and outside voice, right? It's always the same voice. And so that's where we get this this sensation that you're talking about where we feel like oh my god what is all this data even for like mm. why are we generating on it but you know this year alone we're going to generate 44 zettabytes of data now that's an irrational number what is a zettabyte right? exactly. So exactly what is a zettabyte yeah, that's news to me yeah right so 44 zettabytes means two stacks of books from here to pluto that's how much data we're going to be using and the interface that we have created to control our data was designed back in the 70s at Xerox Park when we dealt with about five kilobytes right. of data, right? Yeah. And, and that's like, we don't even, we can't even, we don't even have photographs anymore that are five kilobytes of data. That's just such a micro amount of data. So true. And so no wonder we're overwhelmed. It's kind of like we're trying to read War and Peace, a 1,200-page novel, one letter at a time through a little tiny peephole window, yeah. right? That. There's no way for us to understand what's happening in there. There's no reference point. We don't even know when the right. sentence is beginning and ending. It's just one letter at a time. So how do we then appeal to those people who are at the front line, whether the banks or the airlines, and they're getting that. Mm. They, so they're getting it in the sense they're this fire hose of mm -hmm. data being blasted at them. Mm -hmm. And like you say, they, they don't have the tools necessarily mm. available mm. to deal with that. So the only sort of the default position is deal with it and then capitulate mm. and then, okay, it becomes a task mm. almost. Yet what you're saying is actually, if we sort of think about this differently, then, you know, if we only sort of just manage and stay tread water, if mm. you like, with the data. We're going to drown. We're going to drown, right? However, if we start thinking about this differently, mm. you know, there's there's a sort of a step up, isn't there? There's an upskilling that's required because I think right now is that you talk about like the isolation tank. We're seeing kind of like organizations trying to deal with this and they have the data scientists now, mm -hmm. right? But is it just a data scientist thing? You know, what mm -hmm. do people need to be doing? And, and I guess the next question is, I'm going back to the bank on Monday morning yeah. and I've had a great conference here, but what do I do? What do I do about yeah. it, right? So there's a couple things that on to that point. One is that the 
this is why I was talking about AI as an upgrade to our neocortex. Like, but right now, when we think about AIs, a lot of people get freaked out because they're like, oh, this is going to take my job. Yeah. And it, the reason we're afraid of it is because we've always thought of technology as being other, as being something outside of ourselves. That's something that is a, a destination. And so it's really easy to imagine it taking over. But we're seeing a, an emergence where we're partnering with the AIs, where it becomes our pair. In fact, Google has something called Google Pair, which is about how to create a synergy between you and the AI so that it can take on tasks that you're, you just don't have time to do. And you can focus on the really human parts of things. So we're seeing these AIs start to creep up that can allow you to have a real-time kind of more human type of conversation, both with the data, but also with the humans involved mm. in this problem. Um, and then the, the other, the, the flip side of it is how do you prepare for this oncoming automation of that kind of thing? Because like I said, it's scary and it feels like we're going to lose our jobs because if, especially if your job is data entry and suddenly we're going to have this thing that does it on its own, or if you're a data scientist and um, suddenly we're going to have software that can make sense of data for us, then what's a data scientist for, right? And so people are starting to panic. They shouldn't. Um, because what happens is, is that we can start to, we're going to, we are already starting to see a whole new class of jobs starting to emerge that allow that, that happen because this stuff is going away and there's methods to deal with this. So for example, Accenture in Chicago, um, big consulting firm, mm -hmm. right? Accenture. And what they have started doing is incentivizing people to automate themselves out of a job. And the way they're doing that is they say, Hey, you, if you create a way to automate what you do on a daily, we promise to reskill you for a better job. And so by doing that, they're actually automating a majority of their business, but in the meantime, developing way more powerful employees that can do much more things that Accenture has never been able to focus on because they were so busy dealing with the, the little redundant activities mm -hmm. that have to happen on the daily. So, there are solutions to this. And, and if I was a bank going to my office on Monday, that's where I would start looking is, hey, how can I start to automate some of these things to free people up to be able to do all these things that we've never been able to do, that we've always wanted to do, but never been able to do because we are so busy just keeping our doors open on a daily basis. The Accenture example is fascinating. Yeah, and right? I wonder if that becomes the case study, that the playbook that people will follow. and. There has to be a certain there has to be certain conditions that can, that uh, allow that to take place. There has to be the political willpower mm -hmm. that and the incentive structure. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I'm not going to automate my job and then lose it, right? right? So that's not what it's the task rather than the job, right? So you know, what? How do we sort of make that happen? Who who has to take the lead in this? Where does it come from? Because you know, there's the fear part. You talk mm -hmm. about the panic, but you know, mm -hmm. do I want to automate myself out of what I've been doing for 20 years. Mm. I mean, that's another thing as well, the habit that yeah. you know people are scared of that. Where, where does it start? The Where's comfort the of it all, right? Yeah, is there a lever there that we can work with? How would you advise people in, in that sort of context? Well, on an individual level, what I would say is look at the fact that there are parts of your, I don't know about you, but I, I have dream big dreams. Even though I've been doing the same thing for roughly for 25 years, right? There's things that I wish I could do if only I could 
get somebody else to deal with all this other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the fact of the matter is I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to hire all these specialized people, but now I could leverage automation to be able to take count on some of those tasks. So for me, I have an incentive to do that. However, my livelihood is based on me doing the job that I've been doing for 25 years, right? Um, so th that's a scary thing. So that's when we have to also start to bring in the the corporations, the government, mm. um, the educational institutions, the 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 employers have to start to create different incentive structures within their organizations that really reward people for being able to move and, and giving them clear stepping stones. Okay, so if you can get rid of these mundane tasks that actually make you crazy about your job, that means that I'm going to help you to do this other thing that, that you both want to do and we need to have happen within our organization. So there's an incentive structure that has to change. And then from a government side is thinking about the safety structure that we put into mm. place to allow people, especially in education, because I think a lot of times when we talk about government and, and education, we're talking about K through 12, children's education. And what we're going to see is akin to the industrial, the first industrial revolution where suddenly all of this, you know, people in midlife now have to have entirely new skills because they're not farming anymore. They're mm. operating the robot that does the farming, right? And and so you you have to have um, an educational system that allows for this reskilling of people in mid-career to new types of opportunities. And, and that's actually an opportunity as much as it's a challenge, right? Because governments can suddenly start to recognize that actually we could create entirely new industries if we allowed for this type of thing, which is, a, of course, going to impact your GDP, which is what all, yeah. all countries are really looking to do. No? But here in Singapore, there's a, a good history mm. of that very sort of top-down progressive mm. planning in the mm. sense that we preempted that our manufacturing mm -hmm. base is going to disappear. Let's mm -hmm. move into services mm -hmm. and then from services into startups mm -hmm. as they are very mm -hmm. much now. So it takes that sort of stake you know ecosystem approach to the whole problem mm. you can't just have this is the problem that technologies are going to solve it has to go across the board right yeah so i mean if i was an individual within that mm. that change i mean the industrial revolution for example not many people actually i don't think anybody called it the industrial revolution no, like the reformation the time, right yeah. 100 200 years later yeah. oh that was that thing right yeah. it was just a lot of events wasn't it that happened mm. we sort of joined the, the engine to electricity and then yeah. suddenly uh, yeah boom yeah. it's changed yep. so if i'm in the middle of this mm. and i'm just seeing all these kind of like news stories coming out and i'm talking to people like here at the event and i'm getting mm. all these different sort of case studies like, coming out um, what do I do? How do I upskill in this? Because maybe I can't wait for my employer to, you know, allow a different incentive structure because mm -hmm. obviously it's the slowest moving part here. Mm. But as an individual, is there something I can do? Is there skills that I can learn? Mm -hmm. You know, I might not be technical. Yeah. Is there sort of easy wins in that sense? Because people are looking around. There is a bit of panic there, yeah. but they feel they want to grab onto something that they can actually use. Well, the first thing is to really work on your adaptability quotient. Um, I think that's a, regardless of who you are and where you fall into this, whether you're, you know, wealthy or, or just getting started, whatever, you need to start thinking about um, a, a developing a comfort with adaptability, improv and uh, creative thinking and these types of things, which is, it's a skill you can actually learn. A lot of people are like, oh no, I'm not creative. Yes, you are. You can walk down the street, you're creative. That's a completely creative task. You're judging other people, you're stepping over 
puddles or, or whatever. Um, it's a constant creative task. So you are creative. You just maybe don't tap into it as, enough, as, as much as you should. So developing your own comfort with ambiguity and adaptability is number one. Number two is um, looking at your emotional intelligence and being able to build up those soft skills because those soft skills are really where humans excel over anything else. And so you develop those soft skills, you're going to be in a really good position. Thirdly is looking at and becoming comfortable with some of the easy automation tools. There's all of these companies are creating these really simple automation tools that you don't really have to be technical to be able to work with and to start to play with and understand. So, you know, you're playing video games, maybe just also open up um, something that lets you play with an AI such as TensorFlow mm. or, or um, you know, if you want to play with AR, maybe catch some 360 videos. Just start to get your feet a little bit wet and start to think about, okay, now that I know that this stuff is coming, what would I rather be focused on in my daily routine than those really mundane activities, those really rote, repetitive things that actually I really hate, mm. right? And and if you if you can kind of dream in that way, you'll start to see a path forward. And then, of course, the last thing I would say is start to think about where you would play in a gig economy because that's where we're going to be moving towards is really a gig economy. What skills do you have that other people will want Right. Um, and and try to think of those in terms of especially around that adaptability and emotional intelligence that I was talking about. How could you play in a different role at different locations? That is great advice. There's four takeaways yeah. there. Just to summarize, work on your adaptability quotient, mm, yep. number one. Number two, your emotional intelligence. Yes. And there are tools and books oh, yeah. and so sources of information you, you can work on. Um and I think that this is interesting part about, you know, using automation tools. I mean, there's, there's a whole, there's a, there's a wealth of tools yeah. out there. Everything from like TensorFlow to very basic automations like Zapier. Yeah, Zapier is great. We love great. it in our... That's know, the one I was trying to think of. I couldn't yeah, remember I, the name uh, of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. A anybody can learn that, Yeah. right? And um, I love the fourth question because it will really challenge people here. I think you're well ahead of the curve in the US compared to where we are here mm. in Southeast Asia. Mm. Like, you know, where will you play in the gig economy? Mm. They get people thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, that's going to change. Um, that is great advice. Good. Uh, Jody Medich, everybody. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. And Thank uh, you so much for including me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I think as well, just to, you know, you're challenging us. We're, um, you know, we're getting a lot of great feedback here from the event. But I think the challenge everybody has to be mindful of mm. is that, you know, when you go back to the office, it's mm. business as usual. Yeah. You know, the DNA sort of like kicks back in, the gravity of being. The comfort a, of it all, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So how do you keep that sort of moving forward? So and also I'd like to put it out there. I mean, how do people sort of find out more about you yeah. and what you do, your work? And mm. I mean, I guess you're doing a lot of speaking mm. and so on, but your ideas and the kind of stories that you talk about. Where do we go for that? Well, you can just search for my name. I'm the only Jody Medich out there, lucky for me. So you just search for that. You'll see a lot of my videos online and some of my blog posts as well as my articles on the Singularity Hub. Excellent. Yeah. It's Jody Medich, everybody. Thank, Thank you very you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.